This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at Rand. Today we are speaking about the reopening of the U.S. economy, specifically the different recovery roadmaps that states are rolling out and the economic and health trade offs that they're weighing. We have an economist, Aaron Strong, from our Washington office on the call. Hi, Aaron. Hello. We have a physician researcher, Courtney Gedingle, who is also our Boston office director. Good morning, Courtney. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. And we have a public health specialist, Anita Chandra, who is also vice president and director of RAND's Social and Economic Wellbeing Division. Hi, Anita. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Good. Good morning. Uh, This is our sixth call with the experts regarding the pandemic, and we've got more lined up. Uh, Now, as it happens, all of you have been working on some of the many research projects, at least 20, that RAND experts are conducting right now on COVID-19. And I'd like to start by asking you about one of them, uh, which is just out, that tries to get at this question about how and when we're going to reopen the economy. Uh, Anita, perhaps I could start with you. How How did that project come about and what is it trying to accomplish? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for asking. So early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, we realized that there were going to be some tough choices in terms of how we reopened communities and the economy. And we knew that at RAND, we had expertise in public health and uh, uh, clinical work, epidemiology, but we also had expertise on the economy. And we wanted to bring together those two ends of the the conversation into greater focus in ways that could be supportive of state and local decision makers in terms of the choices that they would have to make and that they're making today and that they'll be making over the next several months. So this new tool that we developed really is intended to help state and local officials estimate the effects of some of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. So things like social distancing, opening up businesses and the like, Um, their impact in terms of addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, what the uh, effects would be of resuming services or relaxing some of those interventions, and not just the effects on one factor or another, but to really blend information on impacts on public health measures like disease transmission, um, case fatalities, uh, impacts in terms of hospitalizations, but also understanding the consequences economically at the state and regional level on aspects like gross state income. And so this tool is meant to support decision makers now, but also to support decision makers as new data becomes available, as new policies begin to be proposed, and as these recovery roadmaps start to roll out um, with greater comprehensiveness over the summer and into the fall. So this is not just a one-time deal where you're putting out some research and it's going to sit there and be static. This will be updated. Absolutely. So we're we're able to take data on um, past epidemics and pandemics and what we know of the literature to date, but we're also taking in real-time data from the current pandemic. And that allows us to provide really up-to-the-minute information that decision-makers can do as they choose to either maintain certain intervention portfolios or to relax certain intervention measures and that they can look at some of their decision spaces and their options 
with respect to what it's going to mean for health and economic decisions together. And that's really the value of this particular tool. Excellent. Uh, Aaron, you're on the economic side of this. Uh, what, what have you seen from this research? Well, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen is just the diversity of impacts across the country. Um, that diff different social, social distancing and non-pharmaceutical interventions are having differential impacts depending upon the composition of the, of the different economies that we consider in terms of the states and, the, and, and, and local regions. Um, you know, states that, are, that we see having, in some sense, disproportionately large costs have economies that are focused in much more on agriculture and food processing. Those economies that are much more diverse in places like New York and California, we're seeing less costly impacts to these non-pharmaceutical interventions. So just the sheer diversity of impacts across these different economies is, is, was amazing to me. I, I was not expecting there to be such a great difference. Uh, can you quantify the, the the sorts of differences that you're you're seeing? Yeah. So so our approach was to look at to to build a model of every state in the District of Columbia's economy based on historic data, calibrate those models using historic data, and then alter those economies based on different social distancing and non-pharmaceutical intervention policies, where we alter. Um, output in certain sectors and then see how those flow through the supply chain to cause disruptions in other sectors. And so we did this on a weekly time scale. And so we're seeing um, in places like Alaska, you know, dec declines in output or declines in income of, on the order of 9% for so some of our more extreme um, social distancing policies. Whereas in a place like Indiana, we're seeing declines on the order of 45%. What, what, are the, what are the sorts of uh, characteristics that would define extreme social distancing? So what we've done is we've, we've built in or we've considered five separate uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. So closures of schools, closures of restaurants and bars to dine-in services, the banning of large events, um, closing of non-essential businesses and allowing those that can work remotely to do so the quarantining of vulnerable populations and the quarantining of everyone except essential workers. And by putting together scenarios based on those, um, those non-pharmaceutical interventions, we in some sense start with closing schools and then add on closing restaurants and then add on closing non-essential businesses so that we get a diverse set of scenarios. And so the, the most extreme non-pharmaceutical intervention we're, we're thinking about is combining all five of those together as one. One does the, policy intervention. Does the research suggest that, therefore, you definitely should not deploy those kinds of extreme measures? No, not at all. I mean, this is this is these are decisions that are that different locations will make different differently. We've got different epidemiological impacts from these non-pharmaceutical uh, measures. We've got different economic impacts, and the tool simply allows a better understanding or a better display of what are those, what are the impacts both epidemiologically and economically of these different non-pharmaceutical interventions. In a, in a place like Wisconsin or Indiana or, or Iowa, where these are very costly in terms of the economic side, maybe they wanna open up earlier. In places where we have maybe higher epidemiological impacts, maybe they wanna open up later. Simply providing more information about what are 
the economic and epidemiological consequences of alternative policies is, what, is simply what we're trying to display. And, and one of the values of the tool, Jeff, is that it allows for this kind of graduated way of looking at the levels of interventions, as Aaron outlined. And so you're able to look at some of the combinations of portfolios going from the most strict, restrictive policies all the way down to uh, the more relaxed. And you can look at the relative change in terms of moving from very strict, what we might call level five in the tool, to something very quick to level two, uh, what impacts that will have on the economy, but also concurrently what impacts that may have on case increase and hospitalization. So that states can start to look at perhaps if they move more slowly by the calendar, um, what they can um, benefit from in terms of economic rebound, but also uh, fewer cases or fewer hospitalizations. But it, again, it has to be done in the context of um, the policy context of that particular state and their economic and health needs together. Courtney, obviously there's a lot of reopening that is occurring as we speak uh, in, mm -hmm. in, at very different speeds in different parts of the country. Uh, what, what's your impression of what's happening and what the effects may be? Yeah, it's, it's such an incredibly complex question. You know, this is a still a very rapidly evolving pandemic where there is a little bit less information than we wish we had. Um, certainly the models that Anita and Aaron have been talking about, what's nice is that we really have this portfolio of interventions that people can look at and then couple that with an epidemiologic model. So model that looks at outcomes like cases and hospitalizations and deaths, as well as the economic model. And so as Anita was saying, what's great is that states can take their local factors into account, which may also include capacity so you might have a state that maybe doesn't have that many cases, but their you know, availability of um, beds and access might be quite low. Um, and that might be a very different situation to a state um, that has more cases, but maybe um, you know, more, more beds and more hospitals available to handle that. So I think this is one of the tools that can start to help answer these questions. Um, I suspect that we are going to uh, learn tremendously as we as we go along from this. Uh, I think what will be challenging is understanding how different the contexts are for some of these states. So I think that we have to be very thoughtful um, if a state reopens and let's just say they do reopen too early and we see um, more fatalities as a consequence and ultimately uh, a harder hit on the economy. We have to really understand why that happened. What is, you know, what is unique about that state or what is that state's context? in terms of why that may have happened and how we can really apply those lessons learned to other states. And we can also learn from other countries. Uh, certainly the context may be a little bit different there, but we've seen some that remain relatively open, others that were uh, closed down and then have reopened with varying degrees of success. So that certainly has been a suspicion and an expectation that when reopening began and depending on how it went, that it was possible and perhaps likely that would create a rebound in the number of mm -hmm. people who are being hospitalized or end up in the ICU. Uh, does the model confirm this or, or at least add credence to that theory? So the tool does provide some information about um, kind of the effects on hospitalizations, and it also has a variable or a factor in it um, that allows you to look at um, intensive care unit uh, metrics as well. Um, one of the things to um, to consider too as uh, states are making decisions about relaxing interventions is that 
there some of these lagged effects on things like hospitalizations and mortality. Um, and so when choosing a particular intervention to relax or to resume or to not have in your portfolio of interventions going forward, um, because you want to certainly have uh, better impacts on the economy, that you might see sort of a delay in terms of a spike a week or two later in terms of hospitalizations uh, and, and related um, case fatalities. And so it allows for some of that, I think, analysis that you're talking about. But again, these are the kinds of things with our tool and with additional analyses that we'd like to do at RAND uh, that uh, will allow us to get even more precise with some of these estimates. Aaron, perhaps you could get at these potential likely second-order economic effects. What are your findings in that regard? I think Courtney brings up a really good point. It's that the capacity constraints in the in the healthcare setting are very important in, term, in, in some sense in determining the effectiveness or the ability to, to treat cases the same thing holds true within the economic side, that the capacity constraints are very, very important. And that the minute we start to, to butt up against capacity constraints of any kind, we start to get these cascading effects going through the supply chain. So, for example, we've seen because we've seen reductions in commercial food delivery through restaurants and bars and, and, and the like, a lot of the packaging that's done for, for, for those commercial settings are very different than done for the retail setting. And so that there are differential supply chains within the commercial food world versus the retail food world. And we're seeing those disruptions taking place. And we see it on the news with you know dairy farmers in Wisconsin having to throw away milk simply because the capacity constraint to produce retail level milk is not there. And so all of these bits of capacity combined throughout the economy to, to cause significant disruptions. To, to what extent is this issue, it, it feels like it's being portrayed and framed as economics versus health, uh, a kind of zero-sum game where no one wins. Do you all see it that way? I wouldn't see it. I don't see it as a zero-sum game. I see it much more like a prisoner's dilemma game in that I would rather be out going to the beach, but I know that that's not a good alternative for the community, but everybody wants to be doing that. And so we could either op you know, open up completely and have significant consequences, or we could all cooperate together and create a, a better outcome. It may be costly in the short run, but hopefully it'll be better in the long run. Will, we will have a healthier um, population and a healthier economy going in the long run. Yeah, one of the things that I think is getting lost in this conversation, which is unfortunate, is how important and interdependent these two um, sectors and systems are. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, a healthy population is one that is um, economically stable and financially resilient. And we know how important these kinds of drivers are in determining uh, people's health, both in the short and the long term. And so individuals, I think, who work in health systems, who work in the broader public health community, have a deep understanding of that reality. And so there is um, a very difficult set of decisions that are balanced against um, ethical guidelines, as well as other kind of social and political issues. But the truth is that we understand um, that the, that economics is a critical part of people's health and well-being. Similarly, 
Uh, I think the economics community, the financial institutions community, the business community understands the value of having healthy workers and healthy families, both for short-term productivity, but also long-term viability. And so this, this kind of narrative is, is, is not helpful because, as, as Aaron rightly notes, I think there's a way for us uh, to create combinations of responses that preserve the best in terms of our health, preserve the best in terms of our economy, but also consider some of the issues that we have in terms of vulnerable populations, equity issues, access, and all of those other considerations. It's imperfect. And this is where the um, the ethical piece and some of the tough decisions have to be made. Um, but it, it is not one that should pit health and economic sectors or systems against each other. Do you have any suggestions for how to ease that perception and, and persuade people that they need to consider this in a different manner? Sure. You know, I think one of our challenges is um, kind of reducing these conversations to single points of decisions. And and um, I call on certainly my health colleagues to, to be more um, uh, persuasive and perhaps clear in the, the way that they're approaching some of these discussions, because there is a piece of the health conversation that's absolutely critical in terms of providing services to those in need in terms of acute medical care and health care services. But there's also a piece of health which is about ensuring that people have um, housing and stable food access and um, healthy environments and healthy homes and healthy communities. And that part of the discussion can be lifted up in the national discourse and in the community narrative. So I think just presenting more of this part of the conversation will go a long way. The, uh, the epidemiology, the disease transmission is absolutely central. But if we start to think that's the only part of health, then we miss a lot of what makes a healthy and well population. Similarly, I call on our kind of our economic um, kind of sector colleagues and people who represent the business community and financial institutions and industry sectors to work hand in hand with us on that um, that discussion and to not make this a trade-off conversation. And I think we can get there. But we probably have to make different choices about the ways that we're approaching the, the dialogue, the terms that we're using, the data points that we're putting out there, and starting to present things together as opposed to um, it's either one way or the other way. That simply won't get us to the outcomes that we all seek. Courtney, you've been spending a fair amount of time in the hospital as a practicing physician. Is uh, Anita's argument mm -hmm. for the health side going to cut it? with your physician colleagues? Yeah, I think that argument is, you know, the idea of thinking outside the walls of the hospital and the healthcare system to really what is beyond those walls is, you know, something that um, is seen as important by many. And it really is crucial, I think, in our handling of this pandemic. So, for example, when we think about contact tracing, I think that is probably going to be a cornerstone of being able to successfully reopen over the next few months, you know, in conjunction with testing, which then leads to the contact tracing. And just doing contact tracing where you give someone a call and tell them they need to quarantine and then leave them to figure that out for themselves, I think has been shown to not be that successful. It needs to be pretty quick and ideally would really be coupled with supports for people in quarantine. So in countries where the response has been effective, we've seen uh, contact tracing be paired with helping people find helping people to find housing where they can actually isolate successfully, helping them with meals during the time when maybe the entire family is sick and really providing 
support for their overall health and not just um, sort of giving them these instructions in a vacuum. Um, you know, a lot of people that are being affected by coronavirus are already quite vulnerable, already maybe struggling with a lot of, of sort of basic needs. And so I think to be truly successful and just thinking about one slice of this, looking at health more broadly is just going to be critically important. So I, I really would agree with everything Anita said. You mentioned a few other examples on how some other countries are hand, handling things. I'd be curious for each of you to uh, tell me some lessons learned you've picked up. I mean, a, a couple of months ago when this began, we really were operating in quite a vacuum, and I suppose to some some extent we still are, but we have more evidence now of what may work and what may not work. Uh, what are you seeing that we should be paying better attention to? I can start. I mean, I think there's uh, this is just going to be an area for so much um, research and learning over the next few months. I think what we've already observed is that uh, effective responses involve, at a minimum, really extensive testing. And I don't think we're there yet uh, by any accounts. There are differing opinions, um, you know, among experts within the United States about exactly how many millions of tests we need. But I think there would be consensus that we're falling short right now. So testing that is quick, that is relayed back to the person who's being tested. And then that has to be uh, coupled with contact tracing. Um, so that, which means, you know, it's a public health term that dates back many years. Uh, and it sounds deceptively simple, but it involves uh, getting in contact with people who have been exposed to someone sick and letting them know that they need to quarantine and then making sure that they do so. And that can be done in a variety of ways. But um, countries, for example, Taiwan has been quite aggressive in contact tracing. They check in with a person once or twice a day to ensure that everything's going fine, um, ensure that they have their needs met as well. So um, I think those two characteristics have been quite important. We've also seen travel bans doing contact tracing and quarantine at airports. And then there are you know, lots of different components. The relative value of that, I think, uh, depends a little bit on context and disentangling all of those effects to really get at the exact value of each component of the intervention uh, still needs a lot of um, exploration. Good. Aaron? I think there's there's two things that, that stand out to me. The first is we've been focusing on thinking about the economy as, as being in two bins, either essential businesses or non-essential businesses. And I think as we move forward, we need to make a bigger distinction between different occupations and that there are some occupations that are low risk, but maybe non-essential. And there are some occupations that are high risk that are essential. And how do we combine both the idea of what is essential to maintain a functioning uh, society with getting people back to work and maintaining or, or better expanding on the supply chains that are already existing and not just simply focus on what are the things that we, what are the basic needs that we need in, in an economy or in a society. And then the second thing is we're not well equipped. So if we start to have these economic impacts going longer and longer and longer, we can think about it as in an analogy to what happened in 2008, that we had this trickling of bankruptcies by, by households stemming from a financial crisis. And the same idea, we went from, you know, three and a half percent unemployment to probably over 20 percent unemployment in a month. To put it in perspective, the, 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 we lost eight million jobs during the 2008 recession. We've seen 30, sorry, eight million jobs in the 2008 recession. We've seen 30 million people file for unemployment insurance in the last month. That's pretty stark. And so 
we need to be maintaining those relationships, those connections to work, those connections to the supply chain, so that we don't have to rebuild an entire economy once we start to come out of this. And so that understanding some of the lessons that we've seen in other countries where they've nationalized payroll. And we've, we've attempted to go down that path a little bit with the CARES Act, but I think we need to be doing more in supporting labor and more in supporting those owners of capital to maintain their employees so that when things start to open up, when things start to get better economically, that we can have a much faster recovery because we're getting back to what we were doing before rather than trying to rebuild something that we, we, we didn't have before. Yeah, I couldn't agree more um, with Aaron on the sort of the the notions around um, how we how quickly we rebuild our our, our sort of baseline resilience, um, how interoperable we are when we think about supply chains and um, and this issue of business diversity and how we're responding, as well as what what Courtney said. The things that I'm thinking a lot about um, are are those issues, and in addition, the extent to which we really have the preparedness plans and regime that we need for any kind of crisis, whether it's the next pandemic, because we had been thinking a lot about a pandemic like this for years, or another kind of crisis. And that means looking at everything from, you know, how we do things technologically in terms of our access. That means looking at our critical infrastructure. That means looking at our global cooperations and and sort of coordinated agreements with global entities on lab capacity. These things need to be revisited um, and um, plans that we had in the past, what would have worked if we had those plans executed today, what's not going to work going forward. And I think there's a big set of questions that we can start to put together in terms of our preparedness regime. Um, As Courtney raised also in terms of Taiwan's response and some of these other things with contact tracing, I think our American health system needs to take a hard look at why we um, weren't able to move as quickly on some of the kind of core tenets of health in, in, in terms of response and testing, health risk communication, and those kinds of first principles of health. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to strengthen, not just for the next crisis, but to just make a stronger health system overall. What should policymakers do now as they are trying to figure out all of these different dynamics and these these trade-offs? When you have a specific threat like this and you're trying to determine what are the effects going to be on the economy and on society, how do you grapple with it? I mean, maybe our tool is going to be our first good step, but I wonder what other thoughts you may have there. Well, I mean, I think we probably need to revisit our our um, frameworks for how we've made some decisions in um, post-disaster response. So a lot of our uh, kind of disaster response frameworks that have guided uh, some of the national strategy have still kind of put things into buckets and tried and, and hoped that they would all come together in terms of a comprehensive plan and a comprehensive response plan. Um, and I think for policymakers, laying out some of these important um, future policy acts, legislative action, um, financial mechanisms revisiting some of those things so it makes it easier to um, pull together uh, funding, makes it easier for interagency cooperation, makes it easier um, for people to rebuild differently. Some of that that was true in other kinds of disasters is still true for pandemic response. And so we can heed some of the lessons that we've had um, from prior disasters and how we think about designing policies forward. Uh, So as much as we talk about these kind of health and economic consequences and the need to connect them, 
they're not really connected in terms of our policy frameworks. And so a very simple solution would be to look at some of our disaster response acts and see where the gaps are and start to fill those gaps um, with, with new understanding. Let's get to the objective of what the policymakers are trying to do right now. I mean, obviously, they're trying to ensure that we are resilient and that our economies get back on track and that people get healthy. Is flattening the curve still the core component of this? Have we flattened the curve? Is it still the core question? Maybe uh, Courtney could start with that one. Sure. So, you know, flattening the curve is just this concept that we're trying to not overwhelm the healthcare system so that not only can they provide care for people who have COVID, but also provide care for other urgent conditions. And I think we've seen certainly in the hardest hit states that the curve is starting to flatten out, you know, whether it was flattened enough before it reached a point at which it overwhelmed the healthcare system is, you know, still something for consideration. But certainly in states that were hit early, like Washington state, I think you could reasonably say the curve has been flattened there and is decreasing. Um, New York seems to have hit sort of a, a plateau I think we're going to see that decrease of the curve. It's not going to be a perfect bell-shaped curve. I think we're going to see that the rise of cases was very rapid and that it's going to be a much slower decreasing slope on the other side, unfortunately. And a lot of that is the nature of this disease. You get sick quickly. It takes some time um, to actually develop complications and need an ICU level of care. And then a very long time if you are able to you know, de-escalate from ICU care for that to happen. So I think we can um, expect that it's not going to be a bell shape. It's going to be this sort of very slow curve once we've hopefully flattened it. I would say that's still, um, you know, a, a critical tenet moving forward. We we still cannot have the healthcare system be completely overwhelmed. It will affect the health of just not only those who have COVID, but also um, those who have other conditions, uh, their willingness to come to hospital, what the secondary effects of that. I think we're still learning a lot about that as well. And ultimately, we want to be able to flatten the curve while also providing the more routine care that other people need. You know, it's not just emergency and then completely elective that you can defer for a year. There's a lot of care on a spectrum that needs to be delivered and that hospitals need to start getting to their patients again, not only primarily for patients' well-being, but also um, so that hospitals and healthcare systems can do the, the job that they need to do. You know, this issue of flattening the curve, which is absolutely, I think, drawn from the the healthcare kind of surge capacity lens, it potentially needs to be revisited in the context of some of the things that we've been talking about today and Aaron rightly raised in terms of just capacity. And so there's also a curve in terms of um, our financial capacity. There's a, you know, a a curve in terms of our, our differential business impacts Um, what we can handle in terms of supply chain, what the downstream consequences are. And so, Jeff, you asked about kind of what policymakers should be thinking about in the context of policies. There's also probably an analytic question in terms of how we braid the the epidemiologic flattening curve kind of notion and certainly don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system for all the reasons that Courtney rightly noted. But as you start to play that out in terms of delayed preventive care and other things, what does that then mean in terms of worker health and well-being? What does that mean in terms of industry capacity to Aaron's points? And perhaps this gives us an opportunity to revisit how we how we essentially blend these curves and look at them, them more jointly. So that's just something to put on the table. And I think building building off of what you just said, Anita, you know, we're, we're talking about the resilience of the community. And, you know, we have a very diverse economic base within the United States which gives us some of our resilience. But on the flip side, when something happens, 
when something happens that overwhelms the capacities, that diversity of, of, of economic base, the interconnectedness with the supply chains, the just-in-time delivery, maybe we need to revisit what it means to be resilient at a firm level or at a, an economy level, rather than just saying diversity is good. That we need to think about what are the what are the redundancies that we're lacking? Where is it that these trigger points happen, and not just think about you know more diversity is better, but what does a resilient economy look like moving forward, and how do we incentivize through our public policy a more resilient economy so that we can absorb these types of shocks? Maybe not this large, but a large shock going forward. I think we can learn a lot from 2008, where we had a financial crisis that turned into an economic crisis. And now we're, we're having a health crisis turning into an economic and a financial crisis. And so how do we start to think better about the resilience across the board, both economically, community, and socially? We're, we're about out of time, but, but to, to wrap things up, along those lines, Aaron, are there some specific measures that we haven't heard much about that maybe we ought to be thinking about? Should we be getting more creative uh, in our approaches to this pandemic? I think we have a good set of tools out there, and I think we, we need to take some, some keys from what we have done in the past. So in response to 2008, what did we do? We made a, a huge public investment to get people to work. And so that same idea could apply today. We could make a huge public investment, whether that's federal money coming down to, to do deferred maintenance that we weren't doing before, to build additional you know, 5G capacity and rural broadband. You know, those public goods that everybody benefits from and not just targeting individual firms and to target labor generally and capital generally, and not to pick winners and losers, but to provide a broad set of policies that everyone can have access to. And making, thinking about making public investments going forward, and that we know there's deferred maintenance at both the federal and state and lo local levels, and how do we, how do we um, take advantage of our, our current situation to try and get some of that deferred maintenance done? Courtney, any last thoughts? Yeah, I'm just uh, going to put on my very my my clinician hat and sort of health hat and just you know I think everyone talks a lot about the vaccine as this big hope for reopening and everything going back to normal. Um, I hold out a lot of hope that we will have uh, an effective vaccine, but I think we need to give a lot of thought now to how we're going to communicate uh, to people about getting the vaccine, ensure that people's willingness to be vaccinated is still present and still high how we're going to distribute vaccine to populations, not just in the US, but also equitably all over the world, since this is obviously a very global issue. Um, so I think that that's a measure everyone is hopeful about that just needs a tremendous amount of planning and you know, a forward-looking eye. Excellent. Anita, any last thoughts from you? No, I just, I would underscore uh, both Aaron and Courtney's point, both about communication and also thinking about this, not just in terms of single infusions or single points of failure, but really systemically, which I think Aaron um, rightly notes. Um, the other piece I would just say is, as these conversations happen about health and economic 
and um, and we hopefully will have them more holistically, as we've talked about over the last um, um, several minutes here. Uh, there There is something that the American public and the public generally has to get used to, which is a tough conversation, not just about risk, um, but about loss. And um, I think those are tough conversations for policymakers to have and public officials and leaders to have. Uh, but there is no there is no perfect and there is no precise when you have an overwhelming crisis like a pandemic. And so being able to start talking about um, choices, uh, the, the ethics of our decisions, vulnerability um, is going to be an important part of this dialogue. And sometimes that's a really tough thing to do. Uh, and when you also want to calm fears and allay anxieties, but that's going to have to be part of the conversation, whether it's about the vaccine or whether it's about reopening. And I think we're going to have to to start getting more comfortable with those difficult discussions than we have in the last few months. Excellent. Anita, Courtney, Aaron, thanks a lot for uh, a great conversation. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks. This Thank concludes you. our call. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.